to the book of Habakkuk. We're going to read verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, uh, slightly different than what I put on the screen there. Habakkuk 3, verses 17 through 19. That's on page 786, if you have one of the black hardcover Bibles. Maybe 787, I'm not exactly sure. Um, but right in that area, Habakkuk 3, verses 17 through 19. Uh, we stand to honor God's word, and remember as we read, we're reading God's word. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. That's God's word. You may be seated. You know, there are times in life, just as we communicate with one another, where we express beliefs in a way that is possibly stronger than we really believe or stronger than we really mean. And if someone sort of pushed us on it, we might backtrack even a little bit. Sometimes we do this in, in pretty ridiculous ways. The, the thing that I'm noticing a lot lately is people's total misuse of the word literally. Have you noticed this? Right? Literally means it really happened. Right, when people say, do you believe that the Bible is literal? They mean, do you think this stuff like, was real? They don't think made up. But, but we use the word literally in a way that means the exact opposite of, of literally. And so, you know, someone will say, I was literally dying of thirst. It's like, no, you weren't anywhere close to dying. Like, you were, you were weeks away from death. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. I was literally dying. Right? Or, or someone would be like, I was in this conversation, and they were, they were so mad. They're, they're, they literally exploded with rage. Really? So you had, like, brain tissue on your shirt because they had expl literally exploded with rage. I mean, it's just like, you don't, you don't really believe that. There were literally a million people at that movie theater. Oh, wow, you went to the world's largest movie theater. It held a million people. I don't believe you. Um, I, I heard this last night. I was watching the, the basketball game, and the Wichita State Shockers, that's their mascot, they're a nine seed in the NCAA basketball tournament, and they beat Gonzaga, who's the number one seed. So this is like a major upset. No one, no one saw this coming. No one expected this. The Wichita State Shockers beat the, uh, beat the Gonzaga Bulldogs. And so the announcer, of course, because they're the Wichita State Shockers, says, Wichita State has literally shocked the country tonight. And it was like, I, I don't, did, did any of you feel a jolt of electricity, whatever you were doing last night? Like at about, you know, 8.30, was it like, and you were like, whoa, what was that? No. Because they didn't literally shock the, the nation, they figuratively shocked the nation. But, but we'll say it in a way that's really strong. So that's sort of a ridiculous set of examples. But, but we'll also do this with things that, that we'll say really firmly and we'll say really boldly, but, but in reality, it's kind of like wishful thinking. Right? So you'll see somebody do something or you'll hear about something that went on and you will say to yourself or, or maybe even out loud, I would never do that. Really? Never? If put under the same circumstances, if having some of the same, right, never, right? And I know what you mean. You don't think you would ever do that. You don't think you'd respond that way, but, but you, you might. 
And if pushed on, you might go, yeah, okay, I hope I would never do that. Uh, people do this when they talk about their children. I was with a guy the other day, and he said, uh, he's going on and on and on about this one child. He's, he's got numerous children. But he's going on and on about this one and how great this one is and how awesome this one is. I said, you love that kid more than the other ones. And he said, no, I love all my children the same. I said, no, you, you wish you loved all your children the same, but you don't, right? And so we'll make these, these statements. Uh, you know, politicians, they've, they've gotten into messes, right, where they go, no new taxes, and then, you know, that's just wishful thinking. And there's something that, that Christians would say Perhaps if you're a follower of Christ, you've said this or you've thought this. Maybe you've said this to someone else. Maybe you've tried to encourage someone else with this. If you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, you would not consider yourself a Christian, um, then I don't expect that you would have shared this experience. But, but, but just kind of listen in to something that I know if you're a follower of Christ, you've, you've thought. And it's a belief that, that you, that is, it, that's true, and you know it's true, and you'd like to believe it, and you say you believe it, and yet there are moments when... If pushed on, you might go, yeah, I'm just not sure if I do. Here's the statement. God is enough for me. God's enough for me. Regardless of my circumstances, regardless of what happens, God is enough for me. Have you ever said that? Have you ever said that to someone else? Listen, I know you're going through a hard time, but God's enough for you. Now, that's a true statement. If you're a follower of Christ, then you believe that's true. But if pushed on, you'd have to go, there's times where I just, it might be wishful thinking. I'm not sure I really believe it. Well, what we're going to get in this book of Habakkuk, what we read just a moment ago, is an amazing statement. Of, of confidence, of trust in God. It's an amazing statement that essentially says what if you're a follower of Christ, you've said, which is God is enough for me. Habakkuk concludes his book, look at chapter three, verse 17, and he basically says, if everything falls apart, if everything that I rely on for my economic and, 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 and physical well-being crumbles, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Notice, he doesn't just say, it'll be okay, but I'll rejoice in this. That's an amazing statement. And we would love, if you're a follower of Christ, to be able to say that. And I would love, if you're here and you would not consider yourself a Christian, I'd love for you to eventually believe in God in such a way that that you believe that he was enough for you. And yet, what I really want, what I want for me, is for not just my words to say that, but I'd love to really believe it. We're going to look today at, at what it was that Habakkuk believed and saw and experienced that allowed him to not just say it, but for it to really be true in his heart. Before we get into that, though, let me just remind you where we've been and just review a little bit of of what we've looked at in this book. This book of Habakkuk, this is our third and final week of looking at this book, and and it's a unique book. Most of the prophets wrote to a group of people. This is a a book that just describes a conversation that Habakkuk was having with God, and and there's essentially three parts to this story. This is how we've broken it up. The first week, we looked at the first complaint that Habakkuk had. That's how it starts, is Habakkuk has a gripe. He's got a beef with God. And God answers it. Then the next week, this is what we looked at last week, Habakkuk has another gripe, and God answers him again. 
And then today what we look at is, is Habakkuk's conclusion, Habakkuk's prayer, Habakkuk's expression of trust in God. And the first week, the complaint that Habakkuk had was, God, why are you so indifferent to all the injustice that's going on? So this was taking place about 605 to 609 BC, and in the kingdom of Judah where Habakkuk lived, uh, the, the people went as the, spirit, as the leaders went, and the, when the leaders were inclined towards God, the people followed, and, and this was a moment where there was no spiritual leadership, and the void of spiritual leadership left the nation filled with injustice, filled with violence, Peop, God's people, God's covenant people called by his name were t- completely mistreating each other. And Habakkuk is saying, God, this is not right. Aren't you going to do something about this? Essentially, Habakkuk's question was, God, why are you so indifferent? He said, God, your law is paralyzed. Justice is going forth perverted. God, why aren't you going to do something about this? And God answers him. And God's answer is, Habakkuk, if I told you, you wouldn't believe me. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take care of the injustice in Judah and I'm going to do it by sending Babylon to conquer you. Now, you, you may hear that and just go, what, what does that mean? Well, listen, Babylon was way worse than Judah. Right? Judah was bad. Judah was evil, especially because they had more light. They had more of God's truth, and they just ignored a lot of it. But Babylon was even worse. Right? When you read the book of Revelation, it talks about all the evil in the world is personified as Babylon. I mean, this is as bad as it gets. And God says, I know it's bad in Judah. I'll take care of it by sending Babylon to punish it. Well, Habakkuk's like, you're right, God. I don't get that. I don't understand that. So now I have another question. This, is, this was last week. God, how is it that you're going to use more wicked people to punish less wicked people? How is it that the, the wicked are going to swallow up the righteous? That doesn't seem right. God, I don't get that. The first week, his question was, God, why are you so indifferent? Last week, the question was, God, why are you so inconsistent? It doesn't seem fair. But but listen, God wasn't under any illusions about Babylon. God, God wasn't fooled by them, right? Like some of you are school teachers or you've been school teachers and you've had the experience where you've got a kid in your class that, is quite likely possessed by a demon. Like that is not out of the realm of possibility in your mind. And you sit down for a parent-teacher conference and you try to, you know, as much as you can, try to explain to this parent that their kid is, is a train wreck. And, and occasionally you will have a parent who goes, not, not my little Biff. He's an angel. He's wonderful. Right? And you're like, no, you're blind. You don't see it. Right? And so it's not, God's, but God's not like that parent. Right? It's not like Habakkuk's like, God, I don't think you understand here. Babylon's awful. And God's like, oh, Habakkuk, you're blowing this out of proportion. Relax. They're not that bad. No, no, no. So the bulk of chapter two is God saying, I know how bad they are, and they're going to reap what they sow. So listen, I'll take care of the injustice in Judah. I'm going to do it a way that you're not going to like. It's going to lead to a lot of pain in your life and in the lives of those around you. And when you're worried about, well, is Judah going to get theirs? Yes. Or I'm sorry, is Babylon going to get theirs? Yes, I'll take care of it. But trust me. Trust me. This is what he said. He said, 
Habakkuk, I know that they're puffed up. I know Babylon is puffed up with pride, but the righteous shall live by faith. Trust me. Trust me. And so what we have in chapter 3 is Habakkuk's expression of trust. Habakkuk decides to do something that's unique, again, among the other prophetic literature, uh, is, is he writes a psalm. A psalm. Now, a psalm is, is a piece of poetry, oftentimes a song. That's why at the very end, uh, the very last part says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. Oftentimes, these psalms would be sung. And so Habakkuk writes a psalm. It's the only place in the, in the prophets where we see a prophet writing a psalm like this. And, and there's a whole book of psalms that you can read, which are basically songs and poetry written for the people of God to sort of uh, communicate what their relationship with God was like. And so Habakkuk, having been through this incredible experience, decides, I'm going to write a psalm. I'm going to try to give voice to the feelings I have. And he writes it this way. And it concludes with what we read. Let's look at it just again. Look at verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. It, listen, that is every part of economic disaster. Right? That's, that's the greatest depression ever in the land of Judah. This means everybody's unemployed, everybody's struggling, everybody's hungry. He's saying if the worst possible scenario happens, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Again, not just, it'll be okay. Right? That's what we try to tell each other when it's bad. It'll be okay. He doesn't just go, I know it'll be okay. He goes, I'll rejoice. I'll have joy. Now often, God doesn't really get our attention until he gets our wallets. I'm convinced that there are issues as a nation that, that are just wrong and immoral and will not get dealt with until they affect our economy. Because that's how it works. And he's going... God, when you hit me where it hurts the most, if, if all of that's taken away, you're enough. You're enough. Verse 19, God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Now imagine with me for a moment if you could say that. Imagine if you could say, no matter what, God's enough. If my health never recovers, God's enough. No matter how I'm mistreated, God's enough. If my wife or husband never changes, God's enough. If I remain unemployed or underemployed for the rest of my career, God's enough. Now listen, all of that would be awful, wouldn't it? Right? That's not saying that all of that's good stuff and you should be happy because that's all just so wonderful and you should have a change of perspective. It's saying, imagine if you could trust God so deeply that in the midst of that, there would still be real joy in him. Imagine that. Where would you get that kind of thing? Where did Habakkuk get that kind of thing? That's what we're going to look at. I think Habakkuk, there were three factors. Why was Habakkuk able to say God's enough and mean it? For three reasons. Number one, Habakkuk knew the character of God. He knew the character 
of God. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. This is his second complaint. He remembers God's character, what God's like. That's what we mean when we say God's character. What's God like? If you were to describe God, his personality, what is he like? Well, verse 12 gives us a bunch of things about God. Verse 12, are you not from everlasting? So, so God is eternal, no beginning, no end. Oh, Lord, my God, my holy one. God is, is holy. That, that word holy means separate from sin, perfectly righteous. We shall not die, he says. That means he knows God's faithful. So God's eternal and God's righteous and holy. God's faithful. Oh Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. Habakkuk knows that God is able to ordain. God rules. He's king. He's sovereign. And you, oh rock, have established them for reproof. God is a rock. He knows God's character. The rest of chapter 2, when God is is cursing the Babylonians in verses 6 to 20, it reminds reminds, uh, Habakkuk that God is is just. God is going to take care of things. So, So this whole interaction communicates to Habakkuk the character of God. He knows who God is. And he says in verse 2 of chapter 3, O Lord, I have heard the report of you. God, I've heard the report. I know what your character is like. What enables you, the the first thing that, that has the potential to enable you to say God is enough is knowing who God is. That way when you experience things, when you, as he says, hear things about him, hear reports of you, you can go, okay, I I know who God is in the midst of this. You ever hear something about someone? Like a rumor? And maybe it's true, maybe it's not. What's the first thing you do when you hear a a rumor or a piece of news or a the first thing you do, it's the first thing I do, is you sort of filter it through, does that bit of information match with what I know of the people involved? Right? That's what you do. And then and you go, okay, I might believe that, I might not. But so for instance, and, and to my knowledge this did not happen, but imagine that you heard a report that this past week Tom Cruise was one, running through the streets of Hollywood. Uh, naked and shouting at the top of his lungs. That could happen, right? And I'm not saying it did, right? Don't misquote me. But, but if that happened, you'd go, that's plausible. Like I, that's not out of the realm of possibility, right? Now, if you heard the same story about Hugh Jackman or Meryl Streep, you'd go, uh, I don't think I'd buy that. Why? Because... There's things you've seen about who they are and their character. Now, you don't even really know them. You don't know, any of them. You don't know Tom Cruise's character, but, but you have some sense of who he is. Habakkuk says, God, I can trust you. You're enough because I know who you are. Do you know who God is? Do you know what he's like? Do you know what his character is about? Do you know that he is a God gracious and merciful slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Do you know that? There's all these places in the scripture where God begins to tell us who he is and what he's like. If you're here and you go, you know, that's, that's helpful and I'm kind of putting some pieces together, but I don't really know God's character all that well, I want to invite you to some. Just 
take a pause here for a second in the sermon, and I want to invite you to, to a new environment that we're creating called Christianity 101. It's a class. You can read about it in your program. And uh, we aren't expecting it to be a huge class, probably a, a smaller kind of uh, with a lot of conversation opportunities. But, but Christianity 101, an introduction to who is God? What is he like? How can you get to know him? And if you've got questions like that or are wrestling with those sorts of things, we would love for you to be part of that, uh, part of that group, Christianity 101. So, so check that out. If you want to be able to eventually say God's enough, then you've got to know who he is. But you can't just know who he is. There's another thing Habakkuk did. Is Habakkuk didn't just know who he was. He also knew God's saving works. He remembered the saving works of God in the past. Here's what he says in verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. He's saying, God... I know about not just who you are, but I also know about what you've done. I know your works, and I fear them. And God, I I long that the work you've done in the past, you would do it again. That's what he says when he's saying, "In, in the midst of it, revive it. In the midst of your wrath, God, remember your mercy. Why remember mercy? Because God is a God who's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he's saying, God, you've proven that by the way you've saved your people over time, even when they didn't deserve it. And so that's what the rest of this chapter is, for the most part, from verses 3 to 15, is it's a, it's a poetic way of Habakkuk recounting God's work in history to save and rescue his people. And the pinnacle moment is actually something that Jews around the world will be celebrating next weekend. It's the idea of the Passover. The Passover was, was where God delivered his people through the blood of a spotless lamb out of slavery in Egypt and into what became the promised land. Now, it took them a long time to get there. They had a long pause in Sinai in particular and wandering in the desert. But, but God was faithful to save his people from slavery and bring them into a life of freedom and blessing. He did that. And that's what this is about. So he says, verse 3, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Those mountains, by the way, that's in Sinai. Those are, just, those are poetic references to what God did at Sinai when he gave his people the Ten Commandments. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand. Again, there was lightning and thunder at the mountain, right? I mean, the mountain was shaking when Moses was up on it, receiving those commandments. And so this is all, right? If you read this, you'll kind of go, what's he talking about? Here's what he's talking about. It's a poetic way of saying, God, you were faithful to save your people in the past, and I trust you'll be faithful again. He points in verse 11 to an incident we read about in Joshua of the sun and the moon standing still when they prayed so that the battle could go on and they could finish it and they could win and the sun stood still. Verse 13 says, You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. He's saying, God... Even when your people didn't deserve it, even when all they deserved was to be crushed, you were faithful to rescue them. And so God, 
we're about to get crushed. And that scares me. But I can trust that you'll be faithful again. And that you'll be there. And that salvation will come out of it. Notice the circumstance doesn't change. The fear doesn't change. Look at verse 16. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, God, I'm still afraid. God, I'm still concerned. I I feel like rottenness in my bones. You know when you get the flu and your bones hurt? I mean, that's what he's feeling. And he's saying, God, I still feel that way. But I am going to choose to trust you, that you'll take care of our enemies, that you'll be a God of salvation, and that you are good and that you are enough. This is a a principle that has really formed me and formed a number of people in our church and for sure formed redemption as a whole. Um, and, And it's a principle that comes from a guy named Tom Schrader. He was the founding pastor of our Gilbert congregation. And he used to say this, and if you get this idea, this is essentially what Habakkuk's saying. If you get this, it will transform the way you look at times of suffering. What you know trumps what you feel. What you know trumps what you feel. And that is absolutely counter to how we think, right? Because when things are crumbling around us, it feels terrifying, right? And, and, and Habakkuk doesn't say, oh, the feelings are nothing. Oh, it's okay. Let me just get all happy clappy. He doesn't say that. He says, this hurts. This stinks. I feel awful. But what I know trumps what I feel. And I know that I have a God who rescues, a God who saves, a God who delivers, and he'll do it again. What has God saved you from? I know a number of people who have had experiences that they tell about a particular accident or a particular kind of cycle of lifestyle they were in or whatever, and and the story essentially ends with, I should be dead right now. Some of us tell it, and it's like, I should literally be dead right now. It's like, okay, did you mean literally? Or, right? Some of you, it's literally. Like, it is not out of the question that you would not be here if not for the intervening, saving, rescuing grace of God. Others of you, you were headed down that path. And God intervened and God sent someone into your life that said, God loves you. This needs to change. What has God saved you from? Has God saved you in some ways from foolish decisions? I had no idea when I was marrying Molly what a great decision that was. And I just thought she was really cute and I wanted to be married and she came from a nice family. I mean, I had no idea. In that, God saved me from just some incredible things. Had I gone down roads in other relationships in my past, I'm not, I'm not sure I'd be in this. I'm, no, I'm sure I wouldn't be in the same place. God saves God rescues in those ways. Maybe you have other circumstances in your life. God saves us from our sin. Has God saved you from your sin? Can you look back at a time in your life where you go, this sin dominated me, and I was a slave, and I couldn't break free, and God in his mercy intervened in the person of Jesus, and now it's not there anymore. Or maybe it's, 
It's not there like it was last week, like it was last year. I'm seeing ever-increasing amounts of freedom and joy and victory, and the temptation is, is less and less enticing because God is working in my life. Can you say that? Listen, when everything's crumbling, the only shot you have for God to be enough is if you know who he is and you know what he's rescued you from. But listen, there's a third thing. Because even just knowing those two things is not necessarily enough. Right? Some of you have been Christians for a long time, and, and you know who God is. You could lead Bible studies on that. You know how God has saved people. You could share the gospel with anybody. And yet when things get really heated up and things get really difficult, you're going, I, God's enough, I hope. Why? Well, there's a third thing that Habakkuk experienced. He knew God, not just about God. That's it. He knew God, not just about God. See, it's one thing to know about God. God, you're like this. God, you've done that. But, but it's a different thing to know God, to have a relationship with God. It's very easy to know about God. There are all kinds of people who claim the name of Christian who know about God but don't know him personally. You know, throughout this book, Habakkuk often uses the personal name of God. John Benzinger mentioned this last week in his message, the, the personal name of God, the Lord. When you see all caps, L-O-R-D, that, that's the personal name, Yahweh. That's the name that God gave to his covenant people. And there's an interesting thing that Habakkuk does that I think communicates a little bit of the, the shift that you have to have if you're going to trust God. And, 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 and here's what it is. If you look at chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, he's describing God. But he describes God in the third person. Verse 3, God came from Taman, and then it's his splendor, his praise, his brightness before him, his heels, he stood, he looked, he shook, his were, right? It's all his, 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 him, him, him. It's third person. But then in verse 8, it shifts. And from verse 8 on, it becomes personal. It becomes second person. It doesn't, it's not just God, it's, it's you. It's not just God out there, it's Yahweh. Verse 8, was your wrath against the rivers... Yahweh? And then it's your anger, your indignation, you rode, your chariot, you stripped, you split. And I think that's a subtle way of Habakkuk saying, God to me is not just a theory. God is not just a concept. God is a person I trust and know. Do you know the Lord? Or do you simply know about him? See, God has gone to great lengths so that you could know him. The scripture concludes by saying that the dwelling place of God is among men. It's with men. That is God's ambition. That is why he sent Jesus Christ here. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It is why Jesus Christ died on a cross. And when he died, the, the, the temple curtain was torn in two to symbolize access that you have to God. People forever knew about God, 
But, but, but through Christ, we can know God. Now, here's what I know, because I've been a follower of Christ for, I don't know, 16 years now. Is, is, is one thing I know is I never outgrow my need to remember that it isn't about what I know about God, it's about how I relate to Him. I think the reason why we can say God's enough but never be quite convinced we believe it is because we, we, we very easily drift away from being with God, from prioritizing relationship with God. It's, it, frankly, it's just easier. It's easier to just go to church. It's easier to just read a Bible and learn some stuff. It's easier to you know, come up with some answers to sort of satisfy whoever's asking. It, it, it sometimes is difficult. Have you ever noticed that you never, ever... Well, I just would say, have you ever noticed how easy it is to watch TV and how hard it is to pray? I mean, you decide I'm going to pray for 10 minutes, and it's like World War III erupts around you. But that doesn't happen, right? Why? Because there's a spiritual battle, and it, it, sometimes it's hard to be with God. And, and where this passage has really impacted me personally is to remind me of a lesson that God continues to teach me over and over and over, which is that I can know about God, I can tell you all kinds of things about God, and what God wants is for me to be with him and to think that that's enough. I was thinking about this, considering that Habakkuk wrote a psalm and considering kind of the theme of what this is and it was about a year ago that I went with a couple of our pastors to Seattle for, a, for an immersion experience in a, a ministry environment that we've now started to create here called Exodus Groups. And we haven't really gone public with it too much because we're kind of just building the infrastructure and training leaders and doing some things like that. But we've got some pilot groups going right now. And, um, and so we went through this experience. And it's an experience where you're trying to um, experience the freedom of going from slavery to sin into the freedom uh, that Christ offers. And so you, you talk about areas of struggle and you talk about areas of disappointment and past and regret and, and try to bring the healing good news of Jesus into that. And so we went through that experience. And, and one of the things that, that was revealed in there, um, at least at that season of, of time last year, was I was fine talking about God. But I wasn't very significantly drawing near to him. And the Lord used that experience to convict me. I, I talked a little bit about that when it happened. Some of you maybe were here and remember that. But one of the things that they had us do, and I, I wanted to just share this by way of example to say, I never outgrow my need to be with God and to know him and not just know about him. So, so one of the things that they had us do, and that if you're in an Exodus group, you'll do this at some point, is write a psalm. And... Uh, it feels funny, especially if you're not like an artistic person, really, to write a psalm and you feel goofy about it. But Habakkuk wrote a psalm. So, so here's the psalm that I wrote. And, and it really centers around the idea of that God wants to be with me and with us. The, the gist of it comes out of Psalm 16, which says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I have no good apart from you. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. In your presence there is fullness of joy. So here's what I wrote. Apart from you, I once walked apart from you on my throne for myself, utmost in my own affections, able to please others but never satisfied, 
myself. Around you, I often walk around you, mentioning you, perking up when others say your name, like you were down the street, talking about you but rarely to you. About you, I know lots about you. Your attributes, your actions in history, answers to difficult questions about you. Doing your work, even when you're not working in me. With you. Your offer, your promise is for me to be with you. As you died and rose, as you reign in heaven, as I sit, rise, walk, and stand, falling into you, trusting you are better than life. About you. Now everything can be about you about your fame, about your pleasure, about knowing your heart, working for you, knowing you are with me, around you. Now my heart revolves around you, drawing near, leaning in, resting on, talking with you everywhere I go, apart from you. Now I will never be apart from you, always loved, always accepted, always close, trusting your promise, I need not walk alone. Now, I, I don't, I'm under no illusion that that's like world-class poetry or anything. Um, but it's just a way of, of communicating that my heart's desire as a follower of Christ, and I hope your heart's desire as a follower of Christ, is that God would be enough. That, that being with him would be the, the fullness of joy in his presence. We need to know God's character. We need to remember God's saving works in history and in our lives. And as we do that, and as that becomes real, and as as what Jesus Christ does becomes real to your heart, then you begin to walk with him. And you begin to have the power and the courage and the freedom and the joy to say, when everything crumbles, when everything's falling apart, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. That's what I want to say. You? Let's pray. God, thank you for moments when you teach us and when you lay us bare by your word. And God, uh, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us. We thank you that you've been faithful to save your people and that you'll be faithful to save us again. God, we thank you that while we were still dead in our trespasses, Christ made us alive together with him. God, we thank you that your light has shone into our hearts. God, we thank you that even though everything around us may crumble, that you're enough. God, the places where we don't believe that, would you, would you strengthen our faith? Would you help us? God, help us remember that we always need to be with you. Thanks for doing the heavy lifting to make that happen. In Jesus' name, amen.